Good morning. All right, is our blood, is our blood pumping? Are we good? You ready to go? Okay, I know it's a little warm in here, so we just made it warmer. I'm sorry. We just made it a little warmer. But for those of you uh, that may be new, if you, maybe you came in during the music, my name is John, and uh, I'm the pastor here. We're in a series called The Old Testament in Seven Weeks. And we've been going through the timeline of the Old Testament because it can be a little confusing if you just pick up the Bible and read it. The Old Testament is not organized in chronological order. It's organized by the kinds of books that are in there. And so you start reading through and eventually in the beginning, it's all going in order. And then at some point you're like, wait a minute, when did this happen? (laughs) Didn't that happen way before? Yeah, because it's kind of out of order in that way. So what we're doing is we're bringing a timeline to bear on the Old Testament. And we've created a a timeline. Ben has some in the back. If you don't have one of these printed out timelines and you want one, um, just raise your hand. What it does is it simply lays out the timeline of the Old Testament. We created this for you guys. Ben, would you run one up to me real quick? I just want to show everybody, and I didn't bring one. I'm ill-prepared. But thankfully, we have Ben. There you go. All right. And it looks like this. Thank you, my esteemed Benjamin. Uh, so it looks like this. It's got six sections and then names under each section. And if you can memorize this, you can easily, very simply memorize the timeline of the entire Old Testament, the progress that God's people make through the Old Testament. So we talked about the founders and we talked about the fathers and we talked about the deliverers and we talked about the judges and we talked about the kings. And then last week we took a break, but there's this group of people that exist within the Old Testament that don't have a spot in the timeline. They're kind of there the whole time. And so if you look at your timeline, you'll see down at the bottom is this group called the prophets. And they, they are interwoven throughout all of these categories, but we still feel that it's important that we take some time to talk about the prophets today. Uh, so I guess I have a question for you to start off. Have you ever wanted to know what to do? Yeah, TJ says yes. Have, have you ever wanted to know what to do? You ever had a decision to make? Or you were worried about what might happen in the future, how things were going to turn out, and you weren't, you just wanted someone to tell you? I wish somebody would just tell me what to do. I wish someone would just tell me how this is going to turn out. Because I got four different options, and I don't know which one's going to lead where. It's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure book. You ever do one of those? I loved those. And you'd like, you'd make your, for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a book you read and you get to the end of a little section and then you have to make a choice. And it says, if you choose A, go to page 42. If you choose B, go to page 87. And then you go to that next page and it takes you to your next part of your story and you kind of make up, you choose your own adventure. They named it well. And I used to love those things, but the, the thing about the choose your own adventure, it's not like life because it's not the same. Because in choose your own adventure, you pick and you go to the next page and you, ultimately, you find out that you die. And you're like, well, I'll just go back. So then you just go back to the original page and choose the other thing that's going to make you not die. And life isn't like that, is it? So there's a lot more riding on our decisions than flipping pages. And so sometimes we're faced with those choices and we have no idea what to do. And we think, if someone would just tell me, if someone could just walk up to me and say, God wants you to move. God wants you to stay. God wants you to take the job. God wants you to turn down the job. God wants you to go to this school or go to that school. If God would just speak to me, then I would finally know, and I'd have confidence to move forward. I remember uh, one time, I tell this story often, so if you've been here for a while, you've probably heard this story. Forgive me, but um, Jess and I had one of the biggest decisions to make of our life. We had to decide whether we were going to move to the beach or not, which for some of you is like, that's a no-brainer. Do it. No, it wasn't that simple. It wasn't that simple. It was a very complicated situation. Um, 
And in fact, every time Jess and I, to Myrtle Beach, in fact, and any time that Jess and I had gone down to visit Myrtle Beach for vacation, I was like, we would drive out on 501, and I'd be like, well, that was fun, but I would never want to live here. It's insane. And so we had the opportunity to move there and we, uh, for a ministry purpose, and we didn't know what to do. We couldn't decide. And so we were down there uh, for a weekend trying to make up our mind. We wanted to hear from God. We wanted God just to speak directly to us and tell us what to do. And so one day we were at a, a, a hotel on the ocean, and I went out early in the morning. All the waves were crashing on the shore, and I sat down in the plastic chair, and I opened my Bible, and I started reading about when God called Moses to lead the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. And Moses, he's just wandering in the desert. He's a shepherd at this point. He's a nobody in the middle of nowhere. And so he's walking around. And as he's walking around, he looks up and he sees a bush that's on fire, which is odd enough. But then he notices that the bush is not being consumed. He's like, well, that's weird. I got to check that out. And so he goes over to the, apparently he's, a, he's more of a fight than flight kind of guy. And so he sees the bush and he goes over and God speaks out of the bush. And he says, Moses, take off your sandals for where you're standing is holy ground. And sitting there in my plastic chair on the, port, on the balcony, I was like, okay. And so I slipped off my sandals <laughs> I had flip-flops on. I flipped them off, and I put my feet down on the concrete, and I, I raised my eyes, and I don't know what I was expecting to see. I, maybe I thought that, like, the towel that was hanging over the railing would just catch fire. You know, maybe I thought a flaming towel was going to be my sign, and God was going to speak out. Or maybe I would look down past, and there would be a beach umbrella down on the beach, and it would just burst into flame but not be consumed, and that would be my sign. But God didn't give me one of those signs. He didn't give me those things. I didn't get a burning towel or a burning umbrella or a burning bush. And it was like I was going through that season. Jess was too. And we were like, God, we just want you to do something and just speak to us. This is the incredible thing about the prophets. That these were people that God chose to speak through. And when the prophet spoke to you, you knew that was the voice of God. I can't even imagine what that was like. I almost, I wish, in a way, I wish I was there, minus the sand and the no modern clothing or chicken wings or anything. So I wish I was there just so that if I had something, I could go to the prophet and say, what do I do? Or when the prophet spoke, I would know this is what we're supposed to do. Now, it's funny. People didn't always do what the prophets told them to do. In fact, more often than not, they didn't, even though they didn't have God speaking directly to them. But that's what the prophets did. And, and one of the questions that I've, I've asked for years and years and years do we have prophets today? Maybe we do, because I was driving down the road the other day, and I saw a dude in a, a, like a big Mercedes Benz, and he had one of those vanity plates. It said prophet, and I was like, there's one. <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> you know, I, it, was, it was surprising. I, you know, do we, do we have prophets today? That's an interesting question. There's a lot of debate over it, um, but I think, I, I think without getting into it too, too in-depth, I think I'll just make it as simple as I can. Um, in the Old Testament, you see these two offices. You see priests and prophets. And to put this as simply as I can, and this is an oversimplification, but to put it as simply as I can, the priest was responsible for going to God on the people's behalf. He was handling the upward communication. And the prophet was going to the people on God's behalf. So he was handling the downward communication. That's the easiest way to think about that. So the question is, and the, these people, like people like Isaiah and, um, and Moses himself, were considered Samuel. They were prophets. So 
They had an office, a position that God chose them for, to be prophets. Do we have that office today? Like they had the office of priest as well. And my answer to that is no, sort of. No, sort of. The office, the actual, the role, the position. Let's, let's talk about that for a second. First of all, let's talk about that role of priest from the Old Testament. Going to God on the people's behalf. What the priest would do, he would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. He would go into this place once a year called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. It's behind this big curtain. And he would go in there and he would offer sacrifices to atone for all the people's sins. It's called the Day of Atonement. And so he was the intermediary between God and man in their, in their communication. Well, when Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for our sin on the cross, it says that when that happened, the, te- the, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. There was an earthquake and the, the, t- the curtain was torn. And what that symbolized is the fact that Jesus is now our intermedi- inter- intermediary between us and God. So we don't need a priest anymore. Jesus is our priest. He, and Hebrews talks all about this. Jesus is our permanent high priest. We go to God, Jesus goes to God on our behalf, okay? He pays for our sins. So we don't need priests on earth anymore. You don't need any person to go through to get to God because of what Christ has done. So he's our permanent priest. Well, if Jesus is our permanent priest, then the Holy Spirit is our permanent prophet, The Holy Spirit, after you accept Jesus by faith, the Holy Spirit comes to live with you and he speaks to you directly from God. So the Holy Spirit speaks on God's behalf to us in our life. So we don't need another person, we don't need another person to do that like they did in the Old Testament. If Jesus is the permanent priest, then the Holy Spirit is the permanent prophet. So no, we don't need the office or the role of a prophet anymore because we have Christ and we have the Holy Spirit. But we do still have prophecy. It's different. The New Testament talks about prophecy as a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift. It's not that, it's not that I am a prophet, but I may be given the gift of prophecy, the telling of what's going to happen or the, the words of God to other people. So now it's a gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 talks a lot about this. I would encourage you to read it and really check it out. It lists prophecy as one of the gifts of the Spirit. And I think, that, I think gifts of the Spirit are, are really misunderstood by people in, in the church, okay? And we're actually going to, after this series, we're going to do a four-week series on the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk more about this. But let me just sum it up really quick. All right. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase. I've heard it. I've said it. I've, pastors have said it to me. That when you get saved, you receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit gives every single believer at least one spiritual gift that they will carry with them the rest of their life. And spiritual gifts are, are, are looked at as some sort of supernatural ability, that I'm all of a sudden really great at hospitality all the time, or I'm, I'm really wise all the time, or I'm really something all the time, that that's what a, whole, that's what a uh, spiritual gift is. And I don't, I don't buy that. First of all, because the Bible doesn't say that anywhere that I can see. Nowhere. What I see when I see, this has been a personal study that I've been doing for about six months in my personal devotional time and studying spiritual gifts. And what I see is that spiritual gifts are abilities or gifts. If you want to think about, actually think about a box that's wrapped up like a present, a gift with a bow on top. That there are moments where the Spirit hands you this gift for a specific purpose. And then you have the choice on whether you use that gift or not. 
And it might be a, a moment of wisdom. It might be a moment of discernment. It might be the ability to do something you wouldn't normally be able to do. But you're handed that gift, and then you choose in that moment whether you're going to use it or not for the purpose that God gives it to you. And prophecy is one of these gifts. So what God will do at times is he will speak to you through the Holy Spirit and show you something about the future, show you something about the result of your actions, or this is where I want to focus more today. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will hand you the gift of something, a word that you're supposed to say to someone else, that you are supposed to be the mouthpiece of God through the Holy Spirit, and that I'm supposed to say something to Jimmy that God, yeah, that's right, Jimmy, like your guitar playing was awesome today, that God, that God would give me something to say through the Spirit that I'm supposed to say to Jimmy. And 1 Corinthians 13 talks about these spiritual gifts, but it also talks about the church being a body. And that every single person has their function, every single person has their part in the body. And you can't say that one part's more important than another, and they don't work without each other. And so here's the thing about it. If the Spirit tells me I'm supposed to say this to Jimmy, and I don't say this to Jimmy then the body's not working the way it's supposed to. I have to tell him that. So, so prophecy is both a gift and necessary for the church. And if it's necessary for the church, then we need to get really good at understanding when the Holy Spirit's telling us to say something and saying it, and also really good at understanding when someone else is speaking to us, whether they're telling us the words of God or not. Because one of the problems with prophecy and saying, I'm speaking for God right now, is that most of the time people actually aren't. The New Testament talks a whole lot more about false prophets than it does about real prophets because false prophets are a lot more common. For someone to say, this is what God wants you to do, but it's not what God actually wants you to do. And so what's important for us to do is to, now because of that, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, okay? What we need to learn to do is we need to learn how to test the spirit, Okay, we need to learn how to test the Spirit. First uh, John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So a false prophet is someone who says they're speaking for God, but they're not. But you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? First Thessalonians 5, 20 through 21. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. So when someone says they're speaking for God, don't just accept it, test it. Don't just accept it, test it. And be careful, don't just accept it because they hold a position of authority over you. So just because your professor is saying something, just because your teacher is saying something doesn't necessarily mean it's from God. Just because, oh, can, I, can I tread into dangerous territory? Just because your parents say something is from God doesn't mean that it is just because they're your parent. It's still okay to test it as long as you test it. I see you laughing. As long as you test it the right way. Just because your pastor says something, don't just accept it because they say it. Test it. I expect you to test what I say. I expect you to check what I say, to cross-reference what I say. And if I say something wrong, I expect you to tell me I was wrong. Okay? We can handle I can handle that. All right? I have the humility to handle that. And I, if I'm wrong, I want to know. I want someone to tell me. I, just, I don't want to be the emperor with no clothes on, you know? Hope you know that story. Otherwise, that was weird. All right, so, <laughs> all right, so we need to learn how to test this stuff. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to the prophet Isaiah. So if you have your Bible, you can open to Isaiah. It's a massive book in the Old Testament. It's roughly about halfway through, through the Bible if you've got the full Bible. 
And Isaiah uh, is a prophet. I don't know what you think of when you think of a prophet. When I think of a prophet, I think of, I don't know, like the Unabomber. You know what I mean? Not, not, not in the sense of bombing people, but in the sense of living in the woods by himself. You know, scruffy beard, some sort of ramshackle building where he lives, and uh, kind of an outsider wandering through the wilderness. And to be fair, some of the prophets were like that. John the Baptist was a little like that. He ate bugs. That was a thing for him. But Isaiah, Isaiah's not quite like that. I think of Isaiah as being much more mainstream, maybe, or normal than you might think of a prophet. Uh, He was classic, man. Uh, Isaiah had, he was married, first of all. And I want to point out that the, there's 133 prophets, I think, that are named in the Scripture. They're not all men. Women are prophets, too, in the Old Testament. Sixteen of them that are named are women in the Old Testament. But Isaiah is, um, he's married, and he's got two kids. And you know how today people try to come up with the most, uh, the most unique name for their kid they can? Like, we, anybody do that? My wife, my wife works in the school. She'll come home, say a kid's name. And I'm like, I don't even, I don't know. I don't know where to start with that name. I don't know. There's, wait, there's an apostrophe, you know? Uh, so, but uh, Isaiah kind of, I think he did the same thing because he's got two sons and their names, I'm going to try them, okay? But between the two of them, there are four hyphens and two apostrophes. Um, so the first son was named Shi'ar Yashuv. Shi'ar Yashuv. I don't know how you yell that when you're mad. It's not short enough, you know what I mean? Um, and then the other was, this is this three hyphens. Maher Shalel Hashbaz. Yeah, it sounds like a hair loss product, you're right. <laughs> All right, that was, anyway, uh, that was, wasn't it Elisha? He was bald, called the bears out on the kids. Anyway, that's the whole thing. All right, so uh, speaking of hair loss. So he's a normal guy, and he's living in a, a crazy time because we talked about the kings last time we were in this series, and um, you had Saul and then David and then Solomon. And then Solomon had a son who wasn't a great leader and there was a coup. And the kingdom splits. So 10 of Israel's tribes go to the north. And that's called the kingdom of Israel. And two of Israel's tribes go to the south and they're called the kingdom of Judah. Well, at that time, there's this, this powerful nation called Assyria. And Assyria is taking over everybody. It's one of the most violent cultures that's ever existed on the face of the planet. And they would just come in and decimate entire nations. And so the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, with their ten tribes, decided they were going to try to fight back against the Assyrians, and they failed. Miserably, spectacularly, they failed. And they were overtaken by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, the the kingdom of Judah, was led by a king named Ahaz. And Ahaz decided, some might think wisely, I, I don't think so, but some might think wisely, if you can't beat them, join them. And so he decided to negotiate a peace treaty with the Assyrians. And in order to do that, what he did is he went into the temple and he took out a golden vessel from God's temple and he gave it to the king of Assyria as an offering. And then they took one of the statues, one of the gods of Assyria, and they took that statue and they put it in God's temple. So there is, there is huge uproar, huge level of fear that's happening in the kingdom as they're concerned about the Assyrians and the decisions that the king is making and the path that they're taking and what's going to happen ultimately. And ultimately, by the way, the Assyrians attack them anyway, but that's another story. And so they're going through all this, and Isaiah is the prophet of God, speaking for God in the middle of this, and he has to try to help everybody walk through it. And so this is what he says, Isaiah chapter 8. And as we go through this, we're going to find filters to how we hear the true voice of God. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. 
For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me. And I want to pause there for a second. The Lord spoke to me thus with his strong hand upon me. When Isaiah was living, he did not have this. He did not have the word of God like we have it. He did not have it compiled in one book together. He did not have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so when God was speaking to Isaiah in this moment, he was actually creating his word. He was giving his word. He was forming his word. Today, we have the complete word of God. It's right here. We have the full word of God. And so God placed his strong hand upon Isaiah. Uh, God has placed his strong hand upon this. And I think this is where our first filter lands. If we want to know what the voice of God is, when we're going to say that to someone or hear it from someone, first of all, God's voice will always agree with God's word. God's voice will always agree with God's word. I think it's the simplest filter and the most important. It'll get you through a lot of situations. If someone comes to you and they says, I have something new. God has told me something new. I know the Bible says this, but God is giving me a new revelation. God has enlightened me to something else. If someone says that they have something different than what's here, they are lying. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He's given us his word, and God's voice will always agree with his word. As people say, well, I don't know about that. People will take it, and they will try to twist it, and they will sometimes will outright defy it. No. And that's one filter that we can use. We have the complete word of God. Okay? That's uh, the first part of verse 11. It says, for the, the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. Warned me not to walk in the way of this people. And if you want to know what the voice of God is, here's another filter. God's voice will challenge your thinking. God's voice will challenge your thinking. If you are thinking the way that everyone else is thinking, you are probably not thinking the way that God thinks. Because we are naturally sinful, so we're naturally going to be opposed to God. We're naturally selfish, so we're, we're going we're gonna to lean towards things that benefit us. All right, so if you're thinking the way everyone else thinks, you're not thinking the way God thinks. Um, the theologian uh, D.L. Moody put it this way. I thought it was brilliant. I thought when I became a Christian, I had nothing to do but lay my oars in the bottom of the boat and float along, but I soon found that I would have to go against the current. And that's the truth. You got to go against the current of the way everyone else is thinking. One of my favorite uh, episodes of the show Seinfeld. Any of you, how many of you are Seinfeld fans? Anybody? It's, it's in syndication now, so you can catch it, I'm sure, on late night TV or something. Um, one of my favorite episodes of Seinfeld is called The Opposite. So one of the characters on Seinfeld is a guy named George, and he is a quirky, short, quirky, bald man, self-proclaimed. I'm not making fun of him. And uh, he finds himself in a situation where he realizes that he's living at home with his parents, he's got no job, and he's got no girlfriend comes to the conclusion that doing what he's always done and thinking what, the way he's always thought has gotten to where he is. And so for a period of time, he's just, anytime, he, anytime he's faced with a decision, he's going to decide what he would normally do and then just do the opposite. Anytime he's in a conversation, he would think about what he would normally say and then just say the opposite. And by the end of the episode, he's got his own place. He's got a job with the Yankees which you can decide whether that's good or not. He's got a job with the Yankees, and he's got a girlfriend. And so it works. And sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder if the best way to follow God is just think about what you naturally want to do and do the opposite. 
because we are so tuned against him. When, when, when we are challenged by something that we hear, it's a sign that maybe this is from God if it's consistent with his word. See, false prophets don't challenge your thinking. False prophets feed into what you already want. False prophets know what makes you tick, and they just lean on that, and then you go, oh, that sounds right. So, so when a teacher, when a, a Bible teacher says something like, the only reason that you're not wealthy is because you're not faithful enough. The only reason you're not successful is because you're not praying enough. The only reason that you don't have what you want is because you aren't focused on what you want. When someone comes to you and teaches you that, it's a line. It's a means to an end. It's a way to, to try to tap into what they know you already want so they can get you on board with what they're telling you to do. That's not the voice of God. That's not the voice of God. Second Corinthians tells us, Paul puts this so well, he says, he says, Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it wouldn't be surprising if his servants do the same thing. You know, when, when false prophets come to you, specifically, listen, when Satan comes to you, he doesn't come looking like a demon. He doesn't have horns. He doesn't have the, the, the horns and the red, you know, spandex suit and the little tail. He doesn't have a pitchfork. Satan does not come to you looking like a demon. He comes to you looking like an angel. He comes to you looking like your friend. He comes to you looking like someone who wants the best for you and to fulfill all your desires. When Satan came to Eve in the garden, he didn't come attacking her. He was a serpent, but he didn't bite her. The serpent came and said, hey, God's holding you back. I got something better for you. And it just fed into what she already wanted. This is what false prophets do. And when the word of God comes to us, it's generally going to challenge our thinking. So we need to surround ourselves by people who challenge our thinking. Who we know when they give us encouragement, we know when they give us direction, we know when they're speaking truth into us that they're not doing it just to make us happy. They're doing it because they genuinely want us to follow Christ. It is very easy to surround yourself with cheerleaders. It is much harder to surround yourself with coaches. And if you want to be what God wants you to be, then you have to be willing to challenge and be a coach instead of a cheerleader sometimes too. To be able to look at your friends and tell them, you've all heard this, right? What they need to hear, not just what they want to hear. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is a process. It's a process of stretching and challenging and tearing and rebuilding and pushing, okay? Be the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, so God's voice will challenge you. Isaiah goes on. Right, he says, do not call conspiracy. All that this people calls conspiracy. You can imagine the conversations, right? Did you hear what King Ahaz did? Man, I don't know what's going on over there in the palace. Pretty shady to me. They're doing deals in the dark. He, did you hear what he did? Did you hear he took a vessel? He took a vessel out of the temple. 
He gave it to the king. You know what? They're, they're just, it's all, it's all, you know what, you know what Ahaz is doing? He's just trying to get on the king's good side so that when Assyria does finally come in, that he'll, he'll get a place in the king's court. I know what he's doing. It's all conspiracy and cloak and dagger and all of this. Trying to get, these people are getting drawn into negativity. They're getting drawn into all these secrets and anxieties. Don't call conspiracy. All these people call conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Dread is a very specific kind of fear. It's a kind of doom and gloom, apocalyptic fear that can overtake us. The Assyrians, you can imagine the people are just flipping out. They're posting articles on their Facebook page from AssyrianWatch.com, you know, about how they're mounting the troops over the other side of the hill. They got their bomb shelters fully stocked with canned goods and clean drinking water. They're just waiting for them to come in. It's dread, it's anticipation, it's apprehension, it's doom. And what it is, is fears are a manifestation of your obsessions. And so they are obsessed with the Assyrians. And so their fears are focused on the Assyrians. Proverbs 23 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And they are consumed by this fear and dread. And then Isaiah says this in 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. You don't need to fear them. You don't need to fear the Assyrians. You need to pick your head up and instead of fearing what's coming, instead of fearing the injustice you anticipate from them, you need to fear God. And you know, the fear of God is different than fear of, of man. Fear of man is fear that they will do injustice to us. Fear of God is that he will do justice to us, that he will judge us for our sins. But we have confidence and hope in Jesus Christ that Isaiah did not yet have. Confidence in Jesus Christ that he has forgiven our sins. So we don't have to fear God in that way. And so God's voice, this is another filter if you want. This is the third filter. God's voice will lead you to confidence, not fear. God's voice will lead you to confidence, not fear. Fear is a tactic false prophets use to get you off the path that God has for you. It is a tactic that the enemy uses to get you focused on what's negative, to get you obsessed with the the dark instead of focusing on the light. And so when God's voice will lead you to confidence, not fear. So if someone says they're speaking for God and they're making you afraid as they do it, if they're inspiring fear in you, it's not the voice of God. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but but a spirit of confidence is what scripture says. Well, where does Isaiah get this confidence? Verse 17, he said, I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. So he said, yes, things are bad right now, but I'm keeping my eyes focused on God and he's telling everyone else, you need to do the same thing right now. And I picture him, he's basically, Isaiah saying, I'm going with God, not the world. I'm not worried about what the Assyrians are doing. I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna do what they're doing. I'm not gonna fear what you guys are fearing. I'm gonna focus on God and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pursue him. And I picture him a little bit like Superman in, in, a, in a scene from a movie where you got just a line of thugs with their Tommy guns or whatever, you know, I don't know what period of time Superman lived in, but the, anyway, the Tommy guns and they're all lined up and they start shooting at him and he starts walking at him and bullets are just bouncing off him. He's not even, it's almost like he's not even looking at them. He's looking past them and where he's going and bullets are just bouncing off. And Isaiah's saying, that's what I'm gonna do and that's what I want you to do. And if, and if someone says they're speaking for God to you, say, God says this, God wants you to know this. Well, it better inspire you to that kind of confidence because if it's inspiring you to fear, it's not his voice. It's not his voice. You know, a misconception about prophecy is that it's all about doom. People think of Revelation they're like, oh, it's crazy. There's wild stuff that happens in Revelation. It's bad. I, I should be afraid. No. 
Prophecy is never about, it's never about doom. Prophecy is always about hope. I even think, you know, Jonah, uh, Jonah was, a, it's, man, that's a fascinating story. Uh, he's one of the prophets, uh, considered a minor prophet just because it's a shorter book, not because he's lesser. Um, but he kind of was. But anyway, so Jonah uh, is told to go to this town called Nineveh, and he hates him. I mean, he can't stand him. And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach the destruction of Nineveh. And he has one, one sentence he's supposed to say. He's supposed to go to Nineveh and say, the Lord says in 40 days he will destroy the city. That's it. And you might be like, well, there's no hope there. Well, first of all, Jonah doesn't want to go, and God has to convince him. So he puts him in a fish for three days. That's a whole thing. Anyway, so he finally does go, and he, he preaches to Nineveh, and he says, behold, in 40 days the Lord will destroy the city which doesn't sound very hopeful, right? Except that the people of Nineveh repent and they put on sackcloth and ashes and they ask God to, to, to forgive them and they turn away from their evil ways and God relents. He does not destroy the city. Prophecy is always about hope to get us on track with what God wants for our life and that there's hope at the end of that. And side note, this is why I say maybe Jonah maybe deserves to be a minor prophet. Jonah was not happy that they repented. <laughs> In fact, he went and sat under a tree and complained to God. And God said, who are you to tell me that? It's, it's pretty impressive, right? In Jonah chapter four. We never tell that part to the kids um, in the children's program, but as adults, we can handle it, I guess, right? Um, but prophecy is always about hope. And this is the hope. Isaiah chapter nine. So he goes on and he talks about how the Assyrians are gonna come in and they are gonna destroy the city and they are gonna turn, turn back on their promise. But this is what he says, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah is saying, I know you've been through a lot. I know we're going through a lot and more is coming. But what you need to know is that the Savior's on the way. He's talking about Jesus here. And a message from God, a prophecy from God, a word from God is always going to inspire you to hope in Jesus. The book of Revelation, which people think is so crazy and all about doom and gloom and the apocalypse and the end of the world and I need my bomb shelter and all that. I need to stock up on guns. It's about hope. It's about the fact that God wins that Christ returns to establish his kingdom on earth. And any time that you feel like there's something you're supposed to say to someone, it must be consistent with his word. It must give confidence, not fear. And it must inspire hope. And if someone's speaking to you and saying that they speak for God, if it doesn't meet the criteria, if it's not consistent with his word, if it doesn't challenge your thinking and if it doesn't inspire you to hope, you need to question whether that's actually from him. And I just want to say that this is a big, it's a big thing to think that you, to think that you could be the mouthpiece of God. I hope that responsibility rests on your shoulders pretty heavy to realize that I better get this right. But don't let that responsibility cripple you into inactivity. 
Because we need this. We need to encourage each other. We need to challenge each other. We need to point each other in the right direction. We need to challenge people and say, hey, if you keep on this path, bad things are coming. Be willing to say those things to each other. What does this look like? You might be you might be sitting with one of your friends in a coffee shop and they're going through marital problems. And maybe, maybe you're sitting down and talking because, because their husband just, just walked out. And in that moment, you're going, I have no idea what to say to them. I mean, what can I say to make this any better? And so you pray and you say, God, would you give me a gift? Would you? And God gives you something to say to them. And you sit across the table and you say, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to tell you this, but I feel like God wants me to say this to you. You need to fight for your marriage. When the natural thing for you to do is say, oh, oh man, what a dog. That guy, oh, he's terrible. Finally, about time. But you pray and you say, God, tell me what to say. And the Holy Spirit gives you this gift and you say, I feel like God's telling me that if you will work on this marriage, you're going to be able to resolve it. Well, that takes some confidence to say, doesn't it? So you better, you, you need to know. You need to know that's coming from him. But if it's coming from him, you say it. Because they need it. Because if you don't say it, nobody will. Because you've been entrusted with a gift. And if things are to happen, if God's will is to happen, you must use the gifts that the Spirit gives you in the way that he leads you to use them. It might happen when you're sitting at a party with some friends and they're talking about the choices that they're making and they're laughing about it. But you know, you feel that the Spirit is leading you to say, you got to get on. I know we're at a party and everybody's laughing about this stuff and all that. But in this moment, I need to look at you and I need to say, if you don't change the way you're going, if you don't change direction, if you don't change path, the end is not good for you. And, and God gives you that gift so that you can be his voice in a situation where nobody else is listening. But if you don't respond to the gift that he gives to you, those paths just keep going. And it's hard because you have to cross lines. Because you have to be bold. Because what you have to say is almost never going to be what the majority is saying. You look throughout history, and nine times out of ten, the majority is wrong. But it's the person who stands up and says, no, God says differently. They're the ones who incite change. It might be when you're sitting with your, with your child, and, and they're struggling with something. They're wrestling through something that's happened. And you just feel that God wants you to speak to them and say, I believe in you and I believe this is your future. And those kinds of words can have power that no other words can. When they come from God. And we need to understand that we may find ourselves on the receiving side of those words. And when someone says that to us, we don't get offended. We don't get mad. We recognize, if we're willing, if we're open, we recognize that those words are coming straight from God and we need to take them seriously. And maybe we, unlike the prophets, the people who live with the prophets, we can learn to listen.
and follow the path that God lays out for us. So let's go to God. Let's ask him for this wisdom. God, we come to you today and we recognize your word and we see everything that you've done. And man, God, in some ways we're jealous. We're jealous that, that you know, the, the, the Israelites had a person. And they could go to Isaiah. And when he spoke, they knew that it was your words. But God, I believe what Jesus said. Jesus is our high priest. But he said, it's better that I go. Jesus looked at his disciples. He told him he was going and he said, it's better that I go so that the Holy Spirit can come. And the only thing better than Jesus, than you being next to us is the Holy Spirit being in us. And let us not underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Help us to learn how to be responsive and how to listen. How to be sensitive, Spirit, to what you want to say so that we know when that comes, that thing comes, that sentence comes out of nowhere and you want us to say it. That we would have the confidence and the boldness to say it. And I believe that the more we do that and the more we show you our willingness to follow those gifts and to use those gifts that you give us, the more of them you give to us because we're proving to be faithful with them. And that as we take that leap of faith and we cross that line and we take the risk to say to someone what you want us to say to them, that that would bring power to the body. That that would bring refreshment to our lives. That together we would walk closer to you because we are embracing what you're asking us to do. So God, we're okay with it if you challenge our thinking. We will look into your word. This is why we know studying your word is so important. So that we can test and discern what your will is. So we know what's wrong and what's right. And God, we know that everything that you say to us and everything you have us say to others is going to lead us to hope and confidence in your son, Jesus Christ. We trust you. We love you. I pray, God, that today someone would put their life in your hands for the first time, that they would, recognizing their sin, they'd ask Jesus for forgiveness, and that, God, you forgive them in this moment, you fill them with your spirit, so that they can live the way you designed them to live. Pray that they'd make that choice right now in this moment. It's in your name we pray. Amen.